Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a stolen healthcare record? That's way harder to track than you might think. We'll tell you all the hottest tools security pros have got to have, and then blame why it's the new cybersecurity hot product. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 213 of Jupiter Broadcasting's Weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on May 7th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. It's good to have you back home again because it's yes. been a week. I missed you, Alan. Mm-hmm. Well, it's I, been two weeks. Yeah, basically. technically. Yeah, because see, Alan yeah. was in studio for Linux Fest. We pre recorded two episodes and then we took a week off. And even though we've done this for like 212 weeks, I still woke up this morning and I was like, I wonder if I remember how to tech snap. Because I haven't done it for a week. I'm like, okay, yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah, okay, I think I got it. And then, you know, you sit down in the chair, you go to the show, it's, it all comes together again, Alan. It's like old yeah. times. Maybe part of what makes me feel at home is our first story. It is a big, big show this week. We have lots in the roundup, lots in the feedback, lots to cover. So it's nice to start somewhere familiar with Mr. Brian Krebs and Krebs on yes. Security. What is our first story, Mr. Jude? Our first story is actually from a little while ago. It's been on my queue since like the day after uh, we were double recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a day in the life of a stolen healthcare record. <laughs> okay. So uh, you know, with Krebs before, we've looked at what happens with a stolen credit card and how they get out to the internet and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one has, uh, you know, so when your credit card gets stolen. Uh, because a merchant you did business with got hacked, it's usually quite easy for the investigators to figure out which company was victimized, right? You look at the people with the stolen credit cards. Where did they shop in common? Oh, look, it was only this one or two places. Sure. It makes it fairly easy to like, narrow it down. Target or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the process of dividing the provenance of a stolen healthcare record, that's a lot harder because the records typically are processed and handled by lots of different third-party firms, most of which have no direct relationship with the patient or the customer who's ultimately harmed. Hmm. And, oh, hello, Alan. There you go. I miss you already. <laughs> there you go. You're back. Uh, just, Hold on. Yeah, Skype, just, wait, just wait for it. And I got you. You're good. Oh. Uh, huh? Your Skype got all a little funky on me, and I, I lost you for a minute, but you're back now. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, so, because with healthcare records, they actually go through a bunch of intermediary parties yeah. and all kinds of craziness. Yeah. Uh, you can't, just because you know the patient that was victimized, which hospital they went to, doesn't mean you know what other people the data went through and where it might have been stolen. Right. Yeah, that seems like uh, it could be extremely know, complicated. Eventually, you end up at their insurance company, and there's probably some places in between, and then there's, it's just all over the place. Uh, so... Uh, Krebs says he was reminded of this last month after receiving a tip from a source at a cyber intelligence firm based in California hmm. uh, who wanted to remain anonymous. Hmm. His source uh, discovered a seller on the darknet marketplace called Alpha Bay uh, who was uh, posting stolen healthcare data uh, in a subsection of the market called random database dumps, hmm. or random database ripoffs. I like this. Come here, look for just any random database from different places and buy it. Yep. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, eventually the same fraudster also leaked a large text file titled uh, Tenant Health 
Hilton Medical Center. Okay. Probably the name of a hospital or something. Yeah. Uh, which contained the name, address, social security number, and a bunch of other sensitive information about uh, dozens of physicians across the country. So it was actually having the doctor's uh, details rather than the patient's in this case. <laughs> uh, when contacted by uh, Krebs, the tenant health company said that the data was not stolen from their databases, but rather from a company called Encompass Healthcare. Uh, it turns out that Encompass had disclosed the breach back in August of 2014, uh, which reportedly occurred after a subcontractor for one of the company's service providers, so not Encompass itself, but somebody they outsourced to, who then outsources to a contractor. Mm. The contractor failed to secure a computer uh, server containing account information. This affected the... Um, so the company that ended up being affected was called 24 On Physicians, so which I'm guessing is, you know, 24-hour on-call kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so eventually there's some other company over here that their contractor didn't secure one of their servers and somebody stole the data. Hmm. The breach affected approximately 10,000 patients treated at 29 different facilities Ooh. throughout the U.S. Okay. And approximately 40 different physicians had their data stolen as well. All right. Hmm. 10, uh, somebody patients. who works for the... Some, uh, so, so who was the subcontractor that leaked the data? Yeah. According to uh, PHI Privacy... Uh, and now confirmed by the Encompass company, mm -hmm. the subcontractor was responsible from a company called PST Services, uh, which is a subsidiary of the company called McKesson, which apparently is really big. Oh, uh, and yeah, McKesson's provide, huge. Yeah, and they provide medical billing services. Yeah, a lot uh, of my clients worked with McKesson. Yeah. The funny one is, uh, it turns out what they did by, you know, the contractor failed to secure the server or whatever, uh, they left more than 10,000 patients' information exposed via Google search for over four months. So stop and think about that for a minute. The information must have just been laying around on their website or something hmm. uh, for people to be able to find it via Google search. Yeah, indexable. I mean, it had to be indexable by the bot. Yeah. So... And probably had a link to it from somewhere in the first place huh. or, you know. Yeah, it either, would... either have to be linked or how else could – if it's not linked, it have to well, be sitting it... in a text – well, if you, if you go to a directory and it does auto-index and the files are there or something. Well, Google auto-index PDFs and things like that, too? Yep. Okay. Google definitely reads uh, PDFs. Yeah, I mean... But I think this was an Excel document <coughs> but, or oh. something, hmm. probably. Hmm. I guess file names would be enough. Yeah. but so, so why was this file just laying around on a website? Like, there's failing to secure a server, and then there's... The information was just posted. Right. You wonder, though, is it like a, a SharePoint server that somehow got connected to the web or something weird that was like an Sounds internet? Sounds like something like that. Yeah. But then SharePoint is supposed to be connected to the web, so you can work on it from home or something. Yeah. 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 And maybe that's what but, happened. I mean, who, who knows? knows? I wish they would give us details on these kinds of things because it's exactly yeah. – this is the bit, a little bit of details that would make a big difference for a lot of people implementing this technology. Exactly. You know, oh, failed to secure the server. Oh, well, I secured my server, so that won't happen to me. Turns out, not exactly what they meant. Uh, but at the same time, they don't want to look like they're completely... Oh, we accidentally posted it publicly on our website, like we're AT&T or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, but anyway, uh, so is it, still, not all breaches involve health information are difficult to backtrace to the source, right? Back in September, um, Krebs discovered a fraudster on the now-defunct uh, Evolution Market, uh, which is a dark web community, uh, was selling life insurance records for $7 a piece. Uh, that breach was fairly easily tied back to Touchmark, the insurance holding company, uh, you know, because the name of the company's subsidiary is plastered all over the stolen records. 
And all the records listed the applicant's medical histories. So it was actually their whole insurance application, which included all their health data, but all the other information as well. Wow. And that's what got stolen. And you say, you know, health records are huge targets for fraudsters because they typically contain all the information the thieves would need to conduct mischief in the victim's name. Right? You wouldn't, you're like, health records, well, there's not that much use to me, right? What, what, what I need to know what medication you're on. Identity theft, I right? guess if I'm going after very specific people, maybe. But yes, uh, your medical record says everything you need to do identity theft. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from the fraudsters opening new lines of credit to filing phony sac- uh, tax returns or requests for internal revenue service data, you know, they can get all kinds of information about you. You know, last year, a great many physicians at multiple states came forward to say they'd apparently been targeted by tax refund fraudsters, hmm. and they couldn't figure out how their data had been leaked online. Well, maybe they were the, some of those I doctors mean, that had their yeah. information stolen. So this is, this is bad from a customer privacy standpoint and all of that, but this is also um, HIPAA violations up the wazoo. This is yep. the definition of a HIPAA violation. Yep. Uh, and a bunch of other issues and problems kind of come out that you know as we've talked about before a stolen credit card is only really worth a few dollars you know mm-hmm. uh oftentimes you only a, a couple of dollars a piece maybe 10 or 15 if they're like high-end corporate cards with really large limits or something but healthcare records often sell for a hundred dollars or more yeah because they have everything you need to you know go and take out a line right. of credit on the person for you know ten thousand dollars or something an identity and so, is so much more valuable than a limited time limited use credit card exactly because the credit card can be canceled easily your yeah. identity cannot be canceled easily <laughs> ouch yeah uh so sensitive stolen data uh posted on cybercrime forums can rapidly spread to miscreants and ne'er-do-wells all around the globe Ooh, i like that one so this company called uh bitglass did a uh experiment conducted uh earlier this month and what they did is they made up uh, 1,500 fake names, social security numbers, credit card numbers, <clears> addresses, <throat> phone numbers, and all that, and saved them in an Excel document. The spreadsheet was then tra- uh, transmitted to the company's proxy, which automatically watermarks the file in such a way that even copying and pasting data out of it will keep the watermark. Uh, the researchers set it up so that each time the file was opened, the persistent watermark, uh, which they say will even... Uh, you know, survive to file manipulation. We'd call home and, and record view information such as IP address, the location, and the device type that the person opened it on. Interesting that you can uh, infect an Excel document such as it calls home like that. Mm-hmm. Eh? Is that a macro, uh, you think? Probably. Uh, a little bit of that and some other stuff. Um, so the company posted uh, the spreadsheet uh, full of manufactured identities anonymously to some cybercrime marketplaces on the dark web. Uh, they say the result was that in less than two weeks, the file had traveled to 22 different countries on five different continents and was accessed more than 1,100 times. Hmm. They say, additionally, the time, location, and IP address analysis uncovered a high rate of activity among two small groups or two uh, specific groups in similar areas with similar viewers, including, uh, they say, that kind of leads to the possibility that there were two different cybercrime syndicates that were passing this file around internally. Because they saw, you know, a bunch of people in the same area uh, or same network or whatever passing it around so that, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. the Russian mafia or some Nigerian group are getting a hold of this fake information. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting to watch the stuff. Yeah. It's a neat experiment they did. Mm -hmm. That gives us some good insight. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I I guess on the face of it, I always considered health records and financial records sort of equivalency 
I knew better though. You know, yeah. I knew better, but just on the face of it, I never really thought beyond the, that that top layer of it. And uh, I, but specifically, not just because it's an identity. That's kind of obvious. Uh, right. The part that I never really gave a lot of consideration to is how much harder it is to track because obviously, like you said, with the financial records, okay, well, these amount of people all bought from the same store, ergo, that's where the breach occurred. Not nearly as easy with health records right. you because you have data brokers, you have independent contractors, you have different uh, offices. Almost every hospital doesn't do the billing themselves. They have yeah. to a billing company. Yeah. And then, you know, often that billing company then has to feed to a bunch of different insurance yeah. companies. Or, and it's even transcriptions. You know, there's transcriptionists yep. that have the records. Those are offsite yeah. contracts. Contractors very often it's yep. huge. The data just gets all over the place, yeah. and we actually have another story about that uh, later in the show. There you go. All right, Mr. Jewel, any other thoughts on that particular nope, story? for that one. All right, well, then I'll take a moment and tell you about our sponsor, Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com, won't you? Hey, everybody in the chat room, go there right now and help support the TechSnap program and check them out. Techsnap.ting.com. That'll save you $25 over at Ting off your first device or $25 service credit, too. Now, what is Ting? You say, well, why, why do I want to save $25? Ting is mobile that truly makes sense. Ting is on a mission to change the industry. There's really a duopoly in the U.S. market right now between two people or two companies that uh, really have no interest for the consumer. They are truly out there to just squeeze every single penny out of your text, your data, your calls, make you pay for these inorbitate amounts of minutes just in case you might use them, these crazy amounts of text just in case you might use them, this huge batch of data just in case you might need that because maybe one week you're going to have a heavy week, one month you're going to have a heavy month. Those, it's just – it's – a scam. And so Ting really cares about that. That's why Ting's doing it differently. No contracts, no early termination fees, and you only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line. You buy your device unlocked, you own it outright. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll save $25 off your first device, and they've got some great devices. Uh, You can get a GSM or CDMA SIM card if you already have a device and you just want to use it. They have feature phones like the Kyocera Duro with a at $47 with a TechSnap discount. The Moto G, $91. These are unlocked. You own them. The iPhone That's 4, the, the MiFi. Is, yeah? It, it, that also makes a big difference. I think so because the, on the face well, of it, it seems like you're paying more for the device. But uh, what I have found is the devices that I own that are unlocked, I can continue to repurpose them for different tasks because they're not like locked into a, a carrier that I no longer use. They just have data and I just pay for that data when I use it. So, like, I have a collection of devices now that I continue to use, like, either for, like, Ubuntu Touch testing or Sailfish OS or different tasks, like, even, like, accessing them as, like, a MiFi device or something for my kids to play. So, in the past, I would get, like, a subsidized phone, and I would be able to use it for as long as I had that contract or that carrier. And then when I was done, that phone just sat in a drawer or I had to sell it for some, like, m- trivial amount of money. But now, with Ting, I, I actually continue to get value out of the devices much longer right. I would have beforehand. That's why I think unlocked is important. When when you're subsidizing the phone, you're basically paying the company you're subsidizing from interest as you're doing it. And that is obviously going to cost you, you know, that's more money you're paying. And a lot of times, like if you look at your really phone company, it's like, oh, well, if you want that phone, you know, you have to have a contract with us for three, two or three years that has a minimum of $50 a month. Otherwise, we're not going to make the money back for the phone quick enough. Right. It's like, well, you know, if I just own the phone, then, you know, if like I, I own my phone, computer, I like, save yeah. huge amounts of money. Just as, it, phones are computers now. Just like you own your computer, yeah. you want to own your phone. And look, uh, it's not that expensive. iPhone 5C, if you want to get a decent iPhone, 500, or I'm sorry, 500, 
Uh, the OnePlus. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Take $25 off the OnePlus. Uh, they have the Sharp Aquios. They have the iPhone 6. They have the Nexus 6, the HTC One, the Moto X2. Own the Moto X2 rocket on the Ting network. They have GSM, CDMA to choose from. It is great. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Check them out. You can also try that savings calculator. If you've got a couple of phones, you're going to save a lot of money because it's just $6 for the line, and then you pay for what you use. I've got three smartphones. Three smartphones on one account, and I'm paying like $40 a month. Or Usually it's like $37 a month even. Techsnap.ting.com. Go try them out. No hold customer service. An incredible dashboard. And all the features you'd expect, including hotspot and tethering, techsnap.ting.com. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan. So I wanted to talk about uh, the security pros and their must-have tools. We actually got quite a good feedback when we talked about getting into the InfoSec industry, including the author who Mm -hmm. wrote the piece contacted us. Uh, So kind of along the same lines, now we have one about great must-have tools. Do you agree with this list? I assume you must. No. (laughs) No. Uh, Well, I kind of – so I saw the, the news article in the headline. I was like, oh, that'll be great. Put it in this show. And, and then you then reviewed after it. After I finished writing it at the end. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I wasn't going to spoil that till the end. So oh, I'm let's sorry. just go through it in the way I've, I've uh, written it here. <laughs> you should have teased me because like, I'm, I'm thinking, well, if Alan put this in here, he must think this is a pretty good set of tools. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was hoping when I started. But, <laughs> all, right. all right. So let's, let's I'll sit back and bit. listen. So uh, Network World had uh, posted an article called Security Pros Name Their Must-Have Tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, they went and talked to a bunch of people around the industry and asked them what are the, the security tools that they love and they absolutely must have, right? I was expecting a bunch of, like, you know, testing and penetration and vulnerability analysis. Yeah, Metasploit, NMAP. Yeah. Uh, that's not what I got. Uh, so <laughs> Lawyers Without Borders, uh, they I'm love sorry, their app called Intralinks Via, which is uh, an application that allows them to securely share files and uh, revoke access uh, to people when they shouldn't have access to the files anymore. Doesn't really explain how that app stops somebody from downloading the file and having it anyway, but uh, that one actually seems fairly useful, right? If you're if you're somebody that has to share data like Lawyers Without Borders and you need some system for that, this application might be good. Hmm. They don't really mention if it costs a lot of money or what, but the Lawyers Without Borders is a non-profit, so who knows. Uh, but then it kind of went downhill after that. Okay. So Yell.com, which is some yellow page site I've never heard of, (laughs) they use a tool from Distill Networks uh, that does bot detection and mitigation services. So I guess this is a service, not a tool. Uh, And basically, they use it on their website to stop uh, bots from scraping all the content and making their own version of the site, right? Because basically, the whole point of this Yell.com site is their big database, and so they don't want it being scraped and stolen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they detect the bots. And also it helps avoid the excess load that the bots would cause by scraping all the pages. Uh, and then surescript.com, uh, which I kind of thought was going to be one of those sites that was selling like PHP scripts or something, but is actually an online prescription service. They use Invincia Free Space Enterprise. Okay. Uh, which is endpoint security. It basically, it stops okay. advanced uh, end-user attacks like spear phishing, drive-by downloads, etc., and contains them and stops uh, their machines from getting infected and having those infections spread. Okay. So it's an application you run on the, on the desktop machines, and it stops your secretary from opening that uh, virus, apparently. I don't know how well it works, but uh, surescripts.com, the online pharmacy, swears by this tool. So it must be good. Mm. Uh, then a biotechnology company, they use uh, EMC's Synchplicity, 
which allows them to secure and distribute content to mobile devices. Uh, their uh, CTO says, it's an amazing mobile app that offers a great user experience and also offers the security and control we need uh, as a ther- uh, biotherapeutics company with lots of sensitive information. Hmm. It's like, yes. So EMC makes this application that they then use to share sensitive data to people's cell phones. Uh, and then they talk about user, uh, people being able to work on one device and then switch to another device and so on. And while I can see that being useful for business data and stuff, for sensitive information, although maybe they mean sensitive information in the form of technology and patents and stuff like that, that, say, the Chinese or other companies would be trying to steal rather than patient data or something. Okay. Because I, I, I definitely don't think you would want the patient data just floating around being able to hop from device to device. <laughs> no, it must be like business dev stuff. Hopefully. And they're just, you know, wanting to keep that away from their competitors. Sure. Okay. Maybe that makes sense. Sometimes paranoia pays off. Yep. Then uh, a private health insurance uh, software application provider. So they're not a health insurance company. They're not a health insurance software company. They're a health insurance application provider company. Like an API gateway, they say. Well, uh, no, but they, so they provide some API and then they use I see, I a see. software called Forum Sentry I API see. Gateway. I gotcha. Which I'm guessing originally the software was designed to protect forums from spam, and now apparently they've written a thing to protect APIs. Uh, but yeah, it prevents uh, bad people from using the API and stealing data with it or something. Man, this all is, these businesses got linked to in this article. This is like a money making article for these guys. Or something, yeah. Uh, Forum Sentry enables us to uh, securely expose our API to our private health insurance funds, third parties, and internal clients, and has provided a policy-based platform that is easy to maintain and extend, all while reducing our development time and resource requirements. Hmm, Okay. All right. Then uh, Firehouse Subs, which is a uh, large restaurant chain, they use NetSurian Managed PCI. Uh, Hold on, this is a sandwich shop now? Yes, uh, it's a sandwich shop that has like 900 stores. Okay. And so they use this managed PCI thing to manage their uh, payment card industry data security standard compliance. They say, NetSurian simplifies PCI for myself and all of our franchisees, allowing us to uh, maintain focus on our other portions of our business, which is making sandwiches. (laughs) I have a theory about all of this. I'll let you continue. Though. Yes, uh, I'm almost done. Yeah. Uh, then there's a software vendor that makes heavy use of software as a service. Okay. Uh, and so they rely on a software as a service sure. called Adalum for SaaS <laughs> to monitor and provide visibility into and protection of their SaaS applications. I think I got a new business idea for Scale Engine, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Iowa Vocational Rehabilitation Services Center. Okay. Uh, raved about the configurability and reliability of NCP's Enterprise VPN solution. Oh, a NCP's Enterprise VPN solution's got to be solid. Yeah. Enterprise remote access designed for scalability in organizations with more than 50 remote users based on more than 25 years of remote access experience. Yeah. Yeah, that well, means it's good. <laughs> based on 25 years of remote access experience means it's based on some good stuff. Yeah. So, uh, here's the part I was going to do. I'm very sorry. When I started writing this news item for TechSnap, I thought the list was going to be useful. (laughs) These were not the kinds of tools I was expecting, and these were not the kind of security pros I was expecting. No. Uh, You know, instead, it just shows a 
a random reporter who knows nothing about cybersecurity asking a bunch of random businesses who know nothing about cybersecurity uh, that just buy magic software and services to solve cybersecurity. That was exactly my takeaway, too. Word for word, what I would have almost said. It feels like these are like almost blame deferral packages. Or let's call them um, bureaucracy blame deferral management platforms. Something, something that's like, here's a thing that we know is a boogeyman, and here's the thing that we can say we're buying to accommodate for said boogeyman, and now we've yeah. mitigated our risks and we've done our job that's, as that's bureaucrats. definitely uh, blame as a service. Yeah. Uh, so if your approach to cybersecurity is buy some magic software, uh, then you're kind of in trouble. Right? Cybersecurity is a mindset. You know, we need defense in depth, blah, blah, blah. Let me say that all it's the time. It's continuing education. Uh, it's following yes. news stories. It's watching the it's, – you know what? It's, it's about being aware doing of as much as can be done, but yeah. more importantly, planning for when everything you've done isn't enough. Huge part of it. That's the big difference, right? Uh, what you really need is cybersecurity disaster kit, right? Like the one you're supposed to have in your house that has like batteries <laughs> yeah. and a flash or like your zombie survival kit, whatever. Water. Yeah, yeah, your zombie survival kit, whatever you want. Um, you know, that's a good so point. The one you have in the event of natural disaster or zombies. Yeah, uh, and and all it, the things you need to that you will need in order to survive until the mess can be cleaned up. Yeah, ask yourself. If it ha- if it's hap- happens, what's what am I going to do to keep us running? Because you're not going to be able to use the production systems; they've been compromised. Right. It's, a, it's and, going to be an emergency. What we need is like a checklist and a to do list and a contact. How list can you, and, yeah? And how are you going to be able to play back what's happened? What's going to be your exactly. trail, your audit trail, to figure out what happened and where you've been compromised and how bad the damage is done and what's been taken? Yeah, you know, it's like all right, we've just found something hickey's going on. We need to freeze this, turn this off. Right. Oh, there you go. So, like, what's going on with the Skype connection? I will mention our next sponsor. Uh, give us a second to let his uh, Skype uh, connection stabilize out. So, of course, that is DigitalOcean. You know, when I think about building a cybersecurity infrastructure, I think DigitalOcean actually could play a role on that. I've thought about this before, like for reporting and analysis tools. DigitalOcean is perfect for this. You could spin up a droplet super fast, and with Docker, you could deploy something in a container and just keep that up to date back at your own local office. You know, keep your tools, your new analysis software packages in there, and then deploy that up to a container up on Docker. I mean, why not? Because you can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start only $5 a month. Now, are you familiar with DigitalOcean? They're pretty awesome. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. Think about that. You can spin up a cloud server. And that blows my mind that you can get going. And, and honestly, some people do it in like 30 seconds. The, the pricing, though, is nuts. $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM. 512 megabytes of RAM in Linux these days is amazing how much you can get done with that. But to do that right, you've also got to have really great I.O. So they've got a 20 gigabyte SSD. They're SSDs throughout. They've got a blazing fast CPUs and then a terabyte of transfer connected to tier one bandwidth at fantastic data centers in New York. They've got data centers in San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Germany, and London. So they've got that covered. And then they have an amazing interface to manage all of it. They've built it on top of these great SSD drives, right? So that's huge. They've done a really good job there. They've used Linux technology that I think is the best technology out there for virtualization. I love that. Now, they've built it all around this management interface to control it. This is truly slick. I think this is sort of their secret sauce that everybody else is trying to figure out, but DigitalOcean's still got it figured out. Go over there and try this. Use our promo code. 
Snap Ocean just to try this part. Snap Ocean will give you a $10 credit. You can try it out two months absolutely for free. Snap Ocean over at DigitalOcean.com. Go try out their slick interface. It really is intuitive. And you can replicate this interface on a larger scale with DigitalOcean's straightforward API, which means it's very easy to snap it in with your existing management infrastructure or any apps. In the Arch user repository, there's already... Uh, uh, like a, a droplet uh, management applet that you can install. It's a, there's also a PPA available for Ubuntu, so you can just control these right from your Linux desktop, Windows desktop, Mac OS de- desktop, smartphones, all this stuff because this API is so great. In fact, they just revved it. The community writes a ton of great stuff. There's also tons of awesome documentation that make taking advantage of DigitalOcean Droplet really straightforward. Go over to DigitalOcean and spin something up. They have FreeBSD, CoreOS, CentOS, uh, Ubuntu. They have lots of different choices. You can do something that has like the whole lamp stack ready to go, or you can do something that's just a bare metal machine. You get HTML5 console access, so you can watch that thing from post all the way up to boot with, uh, you know, I, I, honestly, I think one of the slickest uh, HTML5 consoles, the whole dang thing's written in Go, which is awesome. And you can just see right there. You go in there, you can manage it. Uh, so it's great, too, for uh, setting up like a remote workstations and getting access to that and troubleshooting. It's perfect for that kind of thing. So many different things you can try. With a $10 credit, you can try it two months for free. So use the promo code SNAPOCEAN. Try out DigitalOcean. See what we've been talking about. Even get a good opportunity to try out free BSD. I mean, why not? They've got it now, and they've got great tutorials to take advantage of it. SNAPOCEAN's that promo code. And a huge thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, Mr. Jude, well, you're back just in time to bust uh, bust down some really slick-looking new Intel Xeon processors. Is that where we're going next? Yes. All righty, uh, sir. So when I saw the story, I just had to cover it because I know we all love our hardware porn. Well, and I, I love to fantasize about like what I could build in the near-term future. Like, if I was just going to yeah. have at it, what would I do with this? So this is what's yeah. always great. <clears throat> so Intel's announced this new line of uh, E7s, uh, the E7 V3, which is basically the Haswell EX line of processors so it's like the extreme edition versions for desktop uh so they have the e7 8800 and e7 4800 line of processors uh these include 20 percent more cores and threads than previous uh and 20 percent more uh last level cache as well hmm. uh, they actually have uh, benchmarks there from uh hothardware.com showing actually getting 15 to 20 percent performance gains oh, over really? the old v2s okay. as well i'll dig around uh they also, uh, the interesting thing is with these ones, uh, instead of the RAM being directly on the motherboard, RAM is uh, connected via these uh, scalable memory buffers, they're called. What? Looks like a daughter board. You can, yeah, it is. And you can buy the C1, uh, C112 or C114, and that basically means the system can support either DDR3 or DDR4. So you decide whether you want the cheaper memory or the, higher, the faster memory. Oh, there we go. Uh, you can the use them at the same time, I but see. you can you can buy either type of RAM. For That's your actually server. really nice since the faster memory is very expensive right now. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the great part is you get 1.5 gigabytes, or sorry, 1.5 terabytes of RAM per socket. Uh, so since these are four and eight socket scalable processors, that means that if you have four sockets on your motherboard and you put in four of these uh, of the E7 4000 processors, you get six terabytes of RAM. <laughs> and if you have eight sockets, you could have 12 terabytes oh, of RAM. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, fantasy begins right yes. now. Plus, uh, the memory bandwidth is 102 gigabytes per second. Jesus. Look at this performance per watt, too. That's outstanding. Exactly. So basically, they're about the same power as the old processors, but 20% faster. Mm-hmm. So 
that's you know much better performance per watt. Also, you get 32 PCI Express 3.0 lanes per socket. 32? Yeah. Uh, the old was like 20, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you can get a lot more, you know, uh, 40 gigabit network cards in a machine this way or whatever you want to do. Right. Also, the uh, QPI links that connect the processor to the other subsystems on the higher end versions of these processors uh, now goes up to 9.6 gigatransfers per second as opposed to the old top uh, the old top end was 8.0 and you know the lower end processors still are only 6.4 uh, but they have a new top end uh, for the amount of speed you can get over the QPI links and hmm. most of these processors actually have three of those uh, so yeah like I said the E7 4000 is designed for a motherboard where you have four sockets and the E7 8000 is for eight socket motherboards uh, the one and two socket versions have been out for a while already, uh, but they don't quite get this crazy. Uh, so I broke down some of the different models you can get oh, yeah? and okay. how, how the features expand. Okay. Uh, there was other couple. The other big thing here is they reduced the number, uh, as you can see in that chart just that's just going off the top of the screen now. Yeah. Uh, they reduced the number of different models. You can see how like three and four different models all collapsed into one. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know the numbers were a little silly before, and mm-hmm. it just caused stock problems, right? It's like, oh, that's the processor I want, but nobody carries it because everybody sells like three of each of those, and wouldn't anyway. So the E seven forty eight oh nine is the cheapest one, and basically you get eight cores uh, plus hyperthreading, and each core is two gigahertz, uh, and you get twenty megabytes of last level cache. Okay. Uh, with the more standard uh, E4820 V3, you get 10 cores, but only 1.9 gigahertz. Uh-huh. But you do get 25 megabytes of, of uh, last level cache. Now, both of those, because of the cheaper end ones, don't have turbo boost. Okay. But once you get up to the uh, 4830 V3, you get 12 cores at 2.1 gigahertz with turbo up to 2.7 gigahertz and 30 megabytes of last level cache. And then the uh, 4850 gives you 14 cores at 2.2 gigahertz with a turbo up to 2.8 and 35 megabytes of last level cache Woo. each. And you're going to put four of those in your machine. I, I remember how, what a bother I felt like when I had 32 megabytes of RAM in my entire computer. Right. So if you, if you have 14 cores plus hyperthreading and four of those, all four sockets filled, that's 112 cores mm. <laughs> threads anyway. could you imagine what you could yes. do with that uh all the things you can buy a low-end uh 8860 which gives you 16 cores at 2.2 gigahertz so that's the same uh as the 4850 except for two more cores but same speed but also the turbo is even higher hmm. uh going up to 3.2 actually that doesn't look right but maybe it is um and you get 40 megabytes of, of last level cache. Then you can go up to the 8880, which is 18 cores, which is the new top of the line. So that's 18 cores plus hyperthreading times eight processors <laughs> equals 288 cores. Uh, and they have uh, the 8880 is 2.3 gigahertz up to 3.1 with turbo. And the 8890 is 18 cores, each at 2.5 gigahertz, uh, with a turbo to 3.3 gigahertz. I love which it. Which is just crazy. And then they have special versions of the very top-end processor uh, that they do for um, uh, database servers and stuff where, you know, maybe 
my load doesn't scale quite right, like right. that. Yeah. So I can't actually saturate 288 cores. Right. What I need is more speed out of fewer cores. Yeah. So the 8891 gives you 10 cores each at 2.8 gigahertz with a turbo to 3.5 gigahertz. Or if you really need extreme and, and can uh, maximize the thermal envelope, the 8893 V3 has four cores at 3.2 gigahertz with turbo to 3.5 plus hyperthreading. I wonder. Uh, so if you, if you have a, a load that doesn't thread as well, you can do that. Yeah. Although you still, you know, it's like, oh, only four cores. That doesn't seem like very much. But four cores plus hyperthreading. Yes, yeah. the fact that you're putting eight of these in it, you still have sixty-four cores. Yeah, that's a still that would still be. I mean, I'm and just thinking of our all, workload. Always doing three point two gigahertz with the ability to go up to three point five. I wonder if some of these will eventually make it into like the Mac Pro style workstations too, that also utilize Xeon processors. Uh, well, the Mac Pros are still only dual socket though, right? So yes, it'd be right. like the E7. It'd be like a future generation. Maybe E5 twenty something something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think twenty six twenty v two and then v three is is the similar things. And then like the next thing I think of after that is like how long till it makes it to like the i series, like in the de- like some of these things make it to the yeah, i series. Some of those things would be quite nice. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about my next build already, man. So it's uh, the uh, uh, boy the one to buy. The one I really want is the e the e seven eight eight thousand series. Those look like some sweet. Because they have the higher end clock speeds, ten cores. Yeah, would be plenty. Although, uh, the problem with that is you'd buy eight of them. <laughs> yeah, and look the well, one. Yeah, that- you don't have to, but yeah, like if you if you don't, then all the extra RAM slots and the extra PCI slots don't work. So like each one uh, or two of the PCI slots will be tied to each processor, right? And if you don't fill them all, and you, you have don't to get have to use the numbers, and yeah. Did you notice the the uh, the E seven eighty eight eighty L the one that with eighteen cores? It's only one hundred and fifteen watts. That's amazing. Well, the, there's the 8880, and then there's the 8880L, right. which is slower but uses less power. Yeah, yeah, 115 watts. That's amazing, don't you think? I think that's kind of incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they have uh, lower power ones because sometimes, you know, that's more important than other yeah. stuff. The, one, the other one, the higher power one, uses 150 watts. So it's, uh, it's 115 watts versus 150 watts for the that's – a, that's a decent savings. That'll get, a, that'll get a cooler for you. Right, that's, that's 35 watts. Yeah. It's like times eight. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Times eight. That's two hundred and eighty watts. Yeah. Plus, you'll need less fans, so that's going to save you some watts there. My bet would be those sell more than the other ones. If you're filling a rack with these, yeah, then that's going to make a really big difference. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I love my last comment on on the that story. If you read the show notes, oh, I'll go check. Uh, I uh, Mr. Jude's uh, last comment was. Just get yeah, want. <laughs> right? Oh, you got yep. them all listed out there. So if uh, you glazed over to any of this and just want the uh, facts, Alan has the bullet points in it's the show notes. It's very easy to look at them side by side yep. this way. Bust uh, it all out. That is a lot even, easier. Even on the Intel Arc site, which is where I got most of the information, uh, they, is, they don't always have this quite level of detail to mm-hmm. you know, some of the features that matter to you. You want to know which ones have uh, 45 megabytes of cache? Of last level cache, yeah. <sighs> That's not even counting the higher levels of cash yeah all right mr you have thoughts on that story uh no that's about it for that one all right well then why don't i tell you about our friends over at ix Systems? speaking of those great intel xeon processors ix if Systems, you want one of these yeah. here's who you should go ix Systems is going to build you the best system based around those intel xeon processors they have rigs that's great for like a home office all the way up to the ultimate high-end super high-end stuff that they can custom build you a solution for they can do the whole range and they have an x ex- they have a whole bench 
of experts that truly know how to implement the best in open source technology on the best hardware. They're going to give you white glove support. They're going to pre-test stuff to make sure the hardware is not going to fail when you ship it out to your location. They're going to make sure they work with you through the process from purchase to shipping. It's a really great experience. Uh, we got to see them at Linux Fest Northwest. In fact, you hung out by their booth quite a bit. Uh, well, actually, I went out to dinner with them after. Oh, look at you! Uh, and so that's really cool. Didn't you, didn't you notice I was not out for dinner with you before the Microsoft party? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I cried. I cried. Oh, Actually, sorry. it was okay, though. I mean, I managed somehow. I managed. You had lots of other people. Yeah, it was pretty busy. It was pretty busy. Yes. Uh, but they have their Linux Fest Northwest uh, recap up if you guys want to check it out over at the IX Systems blog. Uh, actually, hey, look, there's our booth right there just yep. in the corner. There's Paige, actually, right there. That's really cool. Uh, yep. uh, so, yeah, there is uh, – yeah, and uh, – uh, it, there was a. It was okay. There, uh, there's Chris and Allen sitting at the uh, sitting at the booth talking to Michael Dexter. That's yep. great. That's a great shot. Uh, don't tell anybody, but that was uh, a Linux powered booth. But we won't we won't mention that. We don't. Have to uh, well, I, uh, yes. But <laughs> as a side note, after <laughs> seeing that, Chris has ported open broadcasting software to FreeBSD, <laughs> including a bunch of fixes to the threading system. Damn toy, it, you guys! And those changes have already been upstreamed into open B, uh, uh, open broadcasting. That's software awesome. Hey, look at well. that. Very cool. Uh, so it's now natively works very well on BSD as well. Yep, and you guys scored some interviews for BSD now. It was mm-hmm. really cool. So uh, go check out IX Systems. If you need a system that you can count on, one where you're not going to get bounced around between the vendor and the hardware maker because they don't understand open source software. And truly, if you want to go with a company that has the people that are creating the technology you depend on working for them, IX Systems where you want to go. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's our special landing page just for you. It also lets you know you heard about it here. Uh, and then you can also grab that ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. They're not going to spam you. It's just 11 key traits you must absolutely demand from your provider. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. I think the, the biggest thing is that, you know, I've never built a server with four or eight processors before or with RAM that has to be on a separate daughter card. I don't know anything about that. Uh, but... I know that if I need one of those, I can just talk to the people at IX and they will know all about it already. And they'll be like, oh, this is, a, you know, they won't just be like, oh, just trust us. They'll be like, all right, here's what the differences are. And, and, you know, they'll be able to tell me, should I use DDR3 or DDR4? And it's like, well, what are you going to do with the server? Hmm. And, you know, you yep. explain to them what you're going to do. And yep. they're like, oh, well, then you probably want to do it this way or that way. Or here's the advantage or and here's the cost difference and so on. Alan, uh, before we run into the feedback segment, it'd be probably a good time to mention uh, BSD Now episode 88, Below the Clouds. It's about the halfway yes. mark in the show, so it's a good time to go get the HD it's version. A great interview about Cloud ABI, which is a, basically a virtual, uh, uh, a non existent operating system. Uh, so that when you're compiling your software, if you cross compile and target Cloud ABI, your binaries will work uh, eventually on most operating systems. Hmm. Uh, currently, it already works on FreeBSD and mostly works on NetBSD, but also will have a Linux done soon. And basically, it provides a capability-based thing, kind of like uh, FreeBSD's Capsicum, but uh, a little easier to use. And basically, means you can make software where the binary will just work on multiple operating systems. That is a neat idea. BSD Now, episode 88, Below the Clouds, available in HD, SD, audio, and probably even Ethereal Thought. <laughs> Sounds like a good episode, Alan. Yes, it was a very good episode. Great interview. Uh, prelude to a talk that we given at BSD Can. 
Oh, all right. So go check it out. Now with the news all done, it's time we get down to the feedback because we love getting your emails. We got so, so, so many this week, Alan. It is mm-hmm. ridiculous. Like, So we're only going to do, I should say, we're only going to do a batch. But without any further ado, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Alan, our first email this week comes in from viewer Aaron. He says, hello, Chris, Alan, and the rest of you at JB. Heller 64-bit here, and I'm wondering about this backup solution I found for Arch. It's called System Tar and Restore. Um, it's essentially two shell scripts, one that tars up your whole rig, and then one that restores your whole rig based on the existing partition layout. I'm looking at a new way to back up uh, an Arch system that is easily to restore a system after a crash or a bad event. At the moment, I just do a simple tar of my home, Etsy, user, and assorted other directories, and then simply wipe out a clean install, and then replace the new DIRs and configs with the old backed-up ones. But sometimes, turns out, it's more time-consuming and often dirty. And sometimes it was the configs that screwed things up in the first place. And Mm -hmm. so I start to search the Majestic Arch Foreman wiki, and I found this system tar and restore script all uh, and so i throw myself out at the mercy of jb think tank for you guys and your opinions and thoughts on the entire matter thank you longtime fan what do you think alan just a um, quick dirty backup when i first started i used something similar called flex backup mm. uh which would basically you know use the find command and a couple other things to do um incrementals and differentials and so on via tar uh and everything uh and it was very similar uh and yeah, it mostly works. Um, Looks like yeah, it has I, an NCURSE's uh, dialog interface to help step oh, you nice. through it. Yeah, um, it kind of comes down. You have to decide one way or another. Like if you're going to reinstall the operating system, then probably you want your etc backed up separately. And instead of just restoring it, you'll kind of cherry pick out bits and put them back. Because if you just do a fresh reinstall and then paste your old etc over top after the reinstall. It, that A, it might have something that was breaking your system in the first place, or B, it's just something that's not going to match up with the new install yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, so if you're doing a full backup where you're, you, know, you have your slash bin directory and you have all the binaries backed up, then you can just splat the whole thing down, right? So then all you really need to do is get past bare metal, right? Getting up the partitions and the bootloader back up and then splat the system down. And most times those are not the things that got blown up unless your problem was a hard drive failure. Hmm. Um, so a lot, for a lot of our setups, I would basically avoid backing up the operating system files mm-hmm. that I could just reinstall, mm-hmm. although I would back up ETC and stuff. Uh, and then later, when I had more servers, I moved to Bacula, and that gave me a lot of flexibility and so on. And you know, I can cherry-pick which files to restore and restore them to a subdirectory and then manually move them back and so on. Uh, and it does a better job of deciding what to back up and makes it easy to write rules for it. Uh, but this tar and restore thing looks pretty good. Uh, but basically it comes down to, you know, make sure you have the right scheme of differentials and incrementals and so on so that you can restore um, with the right amount of granularity, right? Like, you know, if it is a file, a change you made in ETC that made your system not able to reboot, but you made the change three days ago, if you don't have a backup from the day before that you can go back to, then your backup isn't very much used to you, is it? Mm, mm. Uh, and so, you know, if you do something like a, a full backup once a week and then differentials every day after that, then you can always do that. 
So there's a there's a there's a couple of other R sync based like there's R diff that's a tool. Uh, mm-hmm. Also there's R snapshot uh, which is R snapshot's a file system snapshot utility for making backups using R sync. I kind of like this actually this this script that he has the, from Arch is it's just a it's a it's a pretty well done shell script basically it looks like. And yeah, it, uh, the job. It, it very much reminds me of Flex Backup, which is I used more than ten years ago. Yeah. Uh, for similar, and I think we'd both say if you if you instead wanted to just focus like on your home directory data, and and like your dot config files in there, you could probably just go with something as simple as tar snap because then you get it off site, it's protected. Yes, but uh, not tar snap f- is is very good. Although yeah, yeah uh, if you want full system restore capabilities, you're probably better off with a script you found. Yeah. Uh, all right, David writes in with a, probably a pretty common question, so I'm glad we have an opportunity to answer this. He says, "I work in IT, but I am not a system administrator. I often have to work." On our storage, uh, our, oh, I'm sorry. I have to often have work. I often have to work uh, our storage engineers, and it helps for me to listen to the show and understand the capabilities of file systems like ZFS and distributions like FreeNAS and TrueNAS. So maybe you can work with them a little easier. He says, "I know my company has a SAN, and they use it as a backend for all of the virtual machines." First, can you explain the difference between a SAN and a NAS? Why would I use one over the other? Is there a difference in how the disks are exposed to the system and that uses them for storage? Do you want to start there? Yeah. So. Generally, uh, a NAS is a file server you connect to your network, whereas a SAN is a special separate network that's only used for storage. And generally, the protocols are slightly different. Oftentimes, your SAN actually isn't Ethernet. There's something like a Finiband or, mm-hmm. or something like that that can be faster. Although, now that Ethernet is faster, it's not uncommon for them to be Ethernet. But often, with a SAN, you basically expose block devices. You basically expose a chunk of disk called an extent, um, and then some other system uses that. So even in Windows, right, you, uh, so in a SAN, if you're using a SAN from Windows, you're going to get a device that you then format with NTFS, and it's attached to one computer at a time, and you can put files on it. Yeah, you do file if shares in, off that if you want. Right. Well, you don't do file shares off it. You, or the, I mean, use from, it as if it was a physical disk in your system, the Windows but it actually box. lives over the network. Some people will share it off from yes, the Windows. I know, but there. I'm trying to differentiate it oh, from sharing, okay. right? Because right. yeah. the sharing would be with the NAS. All so right, the SAN, ahead. it's pretending like you have an extra physical disk in your system, but it's actually doing block for block to a SAN uh, server over a special network that's not with your other network traffic. Okay. So it's there's no other traffic. With your NAS, it's like a Windows file share, right? You're just accessing a file over there and... Uh, you know, it's it's over, you know, a Windows uh, either like uh, SMB Zimba or NFS file or, sharing or NFS or something like that. Yeah. Whereas a SAN is usually over iSCSI or something like that, mm-hmm. where you're actually dealing block for block instead of file for file. Uh, and with a NAS, general, you might have like not that much different. In NAS, you might have like all of your clients connecting directly to the NAS, whereas mm-hmm. a SAN only one machine usually connects directly to the NAS. Yes, and if you want to share it from that point, the biggest you can. thing. Or, yeah. With a SAN, there's only one client for each set of storage, whereas with the NAS, the whole point is multiple people sharing the same set of files. So he goes on to say, I says I always overhear the DBA and storage team talking about LUNs. I says I'm not sure on the spelling, but what are LUNs and are they specific to database servers or are they used elsewhere? So LUN is just logical unit number. Uh, L-U-N, there's no D. Uh, uh, so basically the LUN is that extent. So basically on a SAN, you have a whole bunch of storage space, and then you divide that up into separate logical units that you can then give, you know, each VM gets one LUN. Or if, you know, if it's for a, deep, a database, you might actually take a bunch of separate LUNs and then, and then do some kind of, like, raid mirroring between them or something mm-hmm. for speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, basically the LUN is the equivalent to a share on a NAS, but for a SAN. 
There you go. Uh, all right. So, uh, Alan, we mm-hmm. had, I want to say, a dozen emails about Docker this week. We had a lot of emails about Docker this week. Gor- and we have yeah. a few uh, follow-up items in our roundup this week about Docker, too. Gorlug, Gorlug wrote on in the subreddit. He says, I have to defend Docker in this episode. Uh, he says, I don't think the critiques about Docker are the fault of Docker itself, but maybe the people who misuse it. I wanted, uh, He says, the first point I wanted to address is updates, security updates inside a container. He says, you can. It, the Docker uh, segment, Alan mentioned how it's uh, hard to update a Docker container. Like he pointed out how you could update a droplet on a machine, but a container would be more difficult. It's the same thing for a Docker container. You can use Docker commit container name image name to create an image of your running container and then now run a new container based on that image. So then you do a Docker run dash D image name to duplicate it. You can now attach a shell inside that Docker and exec, exec that shell and run whatever update mechanism that distribution uses to update it, like yum or appkit or whatever. After that, you can create a new image of that container and run it again, and then destroy the old one. What do you think? That's doable, Well, right? I mean, the, the uh, thing we were talking about, we weren't actually targeting Docker specifically. It was sysadmins being lazy because of containers, or the whole idea of DevOps, where it's actually developers that aren't sysadmins pretending to be sysadmins, and doing it badly yeah. because of their just download. Yeah, so if you're a system and you know how to use Docker, that's great. The problem is a bunch of people that don't download it, run it once, and never update it, and, and you know, so on. He has a tip there because he's like, yeah, you know, don't ever run random images from the Internet. Uh, he says, well, yes. And so is there such thing as a Docker image that's not a random image from the Internet? Well, so he says, check out the Docker Registry him? Hub. Uh, and they're starting to sign them now at the Docker Registry Hub so that you can know right, from so the, the author, hub signed it. But who yeah. on the hub verified that everything in it is perfectly special and great? I don't know if that's done. Before I actually, you know, knowing that it wasn't modified between the Docker Hub and me is of some use. But how did it get in the hub and how much checking went on before they signed it? So they have, and I think maybe they're building this out still, uh, they, have, mm-hmm. they have trusted builds. Uh, uh, that allows you to, you know, maybe, I don't know what makes them trusted necessarily, but they have... Exactly. And that's, certain that's builds have, like, a problem. trusted badge. Uh, I don't know what makes them trusted, but I could see how Docker could sort of build that out over time to, you know, mm-hmm. be, like, vetted or whatever. Um, yeah. But I'm not the only person. You know, yeah. uh, CoreOS people uh, right. have... Uh, are, like, uh, which, Docker is just not going to work. We're going to use Rocket instead. Although and it seems that there's the a CoreOS had made another announcement this week regarding this, which we have in the roundup in just a little bit. So we have a couple of con- uh, container-related stories in the roundup. So so stay tuned for that. Uh, but let's move over to boy, and we got uh, anyway. This ties in. If you're interested in this concept, you should definitely check out the BSD Now episode where we talk about Cloud ABI and the whole idea of instead of needing something like uh, Docker to separate the application from the rest of the system where the actual CABI that is using via something like Capsicum will actually stop the application from going outside of its container. Yeah. Uh, And so basically you don't even need the container. And so you basically, your your application is self-contained and can run as a regular application and can't ever touch other applications Mm. on the system. Mm. And it basically... Then, then you're not dealing with a container that has other stuff in it. You just have your application, and it's isolated by itself. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we got a lot, thank you everybody who sent in a lot of the feedback on the Docker. A lot of Docker users out there, it turns out. Um, so uh, Fel placed 
Phil Placer AD. I'm not even sure how to say this one. Uh, he has a concept that he wants to bounce around to kind of get clarified. He says, hello, Debian 8 was just released. And even though I could safely upgrade from Weezy to Jesse, I figured I should take the opportunity to see over my home server setup. Uh, I've got an i5, uh, 2500K with 16 gigs of RAM and plenty of services running on it like DHCP, Cups, Lamp, Pixiebind, to name a few. The server also acts as a firewall with IP tables. It's a gateway for my LAN. With my current setup, I've created a virtual DMZ by running the services that needs to be exposed to the internet, like Apache, Murmur, various game servers, in a virtual box VM, and then I've bridged the NICs, effectively giving the VM its own public IP address, because my IP gives me five dynamic leases. The setup has been working great, but I'd like your thoughts on the following alternatives to how to potentially set up a DMZ. Dockerize the internet-facing services, expose the ports, and allow traffic to pass through the firewall. Get another dedicated NIC, configure it to obtain it on its own public IP address, and bind the services to that interface and IP, or create an alias NIC, say like ETH0 colon 1, and bind the service to that interface IP, or keep the virtual box and bridge adapter approach and run the services the same way I do now. Use another switch and a Raspberry Pi with its own IP, physically separate the services with the Raspberry Pi, or... Take the opportunity to learn about VLANs and do a relevant implementation somehow, because I know nothing about this. Or perhaps a combination, or none of the above. It's a hobby um, project, would, uh, so uh, a breach or misconfiguration of any kind would obviously be bad, but uh, I would not get fired. And he's got a visual too, Alan. You ready for this? Boom. Okay. Bow. Uh, so, yeah, um, his current VirtualBox thing seems to mostly solve the problem. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, um, the problem with doing something like an alias Nick, like E0 colon 1, or even just a completely separate physical NIC, is that, well, you know, Apache or Nginx or whatever he's running is bound to the one IP. If you have WordPress installed and somebody exploits and gets the shell in, uh, in WordPress or can make WordPress run arbitrary PHP code, there's nothing stopping the process that's running on your firewall from going reaching into your LAN and reaching a machine there where you don't want people to do that. Whereas when you have it set up on your uh, in a virtual box and it's bridged only or yeah bridged only to the nick that goes out to the internet there's no way for it to get into your LAN and you have firewall rules that say hey packets coming from here can't go to there uh, whereas the problem with running the services like this on your firewall is that you don't normally block your firewall from reaching into your LAN but if you're going to have stuff like a web server running on your firewall then you have that problem and that's where uh, you can have advantages from doing something like the VMware. Um, for dockerizing it, uh, VM, uh, the sorry, not VMware, VirtualBox, uh, having a VM is going to give you better separation than Docker, especially, you know, we've found lots of exploits for Docker recently. Uh, so I would stick with the VM. Uh, even with jails on like FreeBSD, uh, because packets are on inside the machine, uh, oftentimes, uh, unless you're doing vImage, uh, machine, even if it's bound on an IP to only you know, be on the internet-facing interface, it can still route over localhost to the internal interfaces mm. and then get forwarded out. And yeah, so on. okay. Uh, it depends on your configuration. You can block it, but it's a little tricky because you know, you're... I feel like, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a good concept to kick around and it could be a mm-hmm. fun project, so, um, but it, I feel like his current to, system works. Yes, it does. Uh, so we talked about a separate switch and a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. That can work. Yeah. And then you talk about VLANs. With VLANs, if you have a switch that supports VLANs, it basically allows you to do that thing with the Raspberry Pi, except not requiring another physical switch. A VLAN basically lets you just on your switch say, these ports are one switch, and these ports over here are another switch. And packets don't flow between those two switches. So I've got got two suggestions. 
uh, I mean, you're, what you're saying, Alan. I mean, because what you're saying there is he's that. I think that's overbuilt. I think that's too much. I mean, it's just that's that's overkill for what he's doing. I think mm-hmm. adds complication. Uh, but I mean, you could do it. The virtual machines are working great. Yeah. Although so, I can understand the appeal of doing a container type fun. thing. Well, no, it's well, if you do a virtual machine, you have to give X amount of RAM to each virtual yeah, machine. Yeah, the resources. If you do a container, yeah. you can share the resources a little more better. A little more better. This is more better. This is what I would – okay, so this, these are my two points. This is what I was going to take off on is keep the virtual box set up unless it's a resources and overhead thing. If it is, then kind of go with the combo Alan's talking about or split the difference and move DHCP and bind – off to a Raspberry Pi, keep cups and lamp. And, I mean, you probably have to move Pixie. Well, I would too. actually do it the other way. Leave yeah. bind Pixie, uh, DHCP, and cups on the router yeah. and move the lamp stack Good. to the Raspberry and, Pi. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose it would depend on traffic. That's yeah. the one that's going to have the exploit, right? Is the yeah, DHCP true, right. From that problem. standpoint, that's a it's really... It's going to be the, the actual thing that, that actually idea. provides a service yeah. to the internet. Right. right? His, his DHCP, his Pixie, his bind... Right. Well, maybe the bind, but probably not, are the only ones that are actually uh, are, are not actually exposed to the internet, right? People from the internet are going to want to reach the web server, not his Pixie Boot system. And so, yeah, this is basically why we recommend not running services like this on your firewall because it's harder to block them off. Uh, but it can be done. Interesting, Mr. Jude. Yeah, All so right. for my setup at home here, basically I have my firewall and it has three NICs. One goes to the internet, one goes to the DMZ, which has its own switch. Uh, and then the other goes to the homeland, and there is a VLAN there so that stuff on my homeland can also get into the DMZ. But that's a more complicated setup. Basically, there's one switch uh, in my rack, and that's where all the servers go, and they only have access to the internet. And then the other switch does my whole house, and it's split with a VLAN, half for the office and half for my house. And then certain machines will basically get a second uh, virtual interface where they have. The uh, a, a real internet IP instead of just a LAN IP hmm. via the DMZ. Hmm. You know what I think our friend's problem is here? He just built a really good solution, and when you're a good admin and you build a good solution, sometimes it just gets a little boring. Yeah, you built something uh, good. You know, and it works. You it have you can have fun doing the other stuff. Yeah, but I think the Raspberry Pi would be fun. Like Alan said, is yeah. I was thinking from a resources sh- standpoint, oh, but I like moving it off from a security standpoint. I think that's yeah. And if you don't have a busy Apache the Raspberry server, Pi is probably pretty slow. Yeah, you get a Pi too, and if you know if it's just your own personal website, it'd probably right. be fine. Uh, yeah, exactly. If you're hosting it at home, you're probably not getting a lot of traffic. Yeah. 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 Half the time, your ISP is Blockport 80 anyway. You got a hardcore internet where you got all kinds of notes on there. Woo, yeah, I got your phone numbers and address book. That's fine. That's going to run fine on a Pi. Now, if you got you know, 10, 15 people banging on that thing, well. Yeah. Reminds me of the when I first launched my very first website, which was a hardware review site. Uh, me and my friend reviewed uh, his new video card compared to my existing one. <laughs> and we took a at the time, high-res photo. I think mm. it was only a couple hundred kilobytes. It was, it was <laughs> not a megabyte. Uh, and we posted it on the website. But we hadn't finished... Uh, we hadn't deployed the website to the web hosting company yet. It was still running on my 56K modem at my house. Nice. And because it was a good review of this new video card that most people... That would like just hit the market. He bought it like the day it came out. It got on some popular, popular hardware forum. And so there was, like, you know, 50 people trying to download this image off my 56K modem. <laughs> Brutal. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, you weren't doing much that day, were you? My 56K got slashed on it. 
<laughs> the original slash dotting. Yeah, that's they're going nowhere on the internet that day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we do have more emails, but you can still send yours in. We still want to get them. Text snap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or we have that contact form. You just go to Jupiter Broadcasting, click the contact link. Be sure to choose text snap from the drop down. Or if you don't want to make a mistake and maybe you could get other folks to answer as well, just go over to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com, and then the community can give you their insights and we'll answer it on a future show. But with the email all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our fantastic subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And uh, the first one I grabbed because, uh, well, we talk about WordPress flaws since WordPress is such a popular publishing platform. And this one seems to be, I guess, exploited right now as we're on the air. Have you heard much about this one, Alan? Uh I really, there are so many of them I don't know which I know. ones. Which, I, really, I really kind of just tune them out, but ours has got a great write-up. It's, uh, I guess they say it's a cross-site scripting vulnerability that resides in the a, a, a generous a, a genera, icons package. I'm probably genera icons. I don't know, Alan. Oh, okay. but it's part so of it's, WordPress. And is it something that's actually built in or something that people have to install? Ours technically says popular. it comes bundled with WordPress. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's already an update out. Active being, uh, actively being exploited yes. and putting lots of sites at risk. Yes. So the proof of concept, there's a proof of concept out there. Uh, at Linux Fest Northwest, we learned that the front page of Microsoft.com is a WordPress blog. No. Yep. Shut up. Although I think they might be smart enough to run it on like a read-only file system or something. <laughs> Hold on. You're telling me Microsoft.com is WordPress? Uh, apparently. Some the, remember, they had the, the Microsoft <laughs> Debian booth. Yeah, I know, I know. Oh, I know they were there, yeah. Huh. Well, I'll look into that. That's impressive. I guess it doesn't surprise me that much they use WordPress, but uh, and I could see that they would be there kind of uh, bragging about it because that's what they were there for. Uh, okay, you grabbed this story about this wormhole, this wormhole, this Windows kernel exploit. Uh, what do we know about this, Alan? Well, so this isn't actually a new exploit. What this is okay. is a driver you install called the Haxis Extreme Vulnerable Driver. Ooh, I like it. Which is vulnerable on purpose. Ah, uh, to allow you to learn how the vulnerabilities work. Cool. So basically, you're installing this driver that has vulnerabilities so that you can then exploit the vulnerabilities to learn how vulnerabilities work. <laughs> uh, hey, why not, right? you got to learn yeah. somehow. Hmm. And so this is basically an overview of how to use it to cool. actually uh, learn it, about vulnerabilities available to the, in Windows. It's available to the public? Uh, apparently. Apparently it is, yeah. This cool. is like, it comes with the instructions. So. <laughs> nice. Go hack yourself a Windows installation, everybody. Uh, all right. Well, then. Yeah, uh, so basically, what you do is you have two Windows machines. One's the debugger and one's the debuggy. So you're using the one machine to watch the other machine, and then exploiting that machine and watching how it happens. Uh, let's so, let's. Uh, looks like an interesting thing to have in your little uh, test lab. We should hone in now, Alan, on our next roundup story. Speaking of online pharmacies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an online pharmacy called PillPack.com, uh, and so apparently the way it works is there's some super secret nobody knows about API or service or something uh-huh. that the pharmacies use <clears throat> to get the information from your doctor about your prescription and also as mandated by the US government to make it so that you can switch pharmacies if you want. Okay. So that your prescription isn't necessarily tied to the, the yeah. first place right. you went to or whatever. Okay. Uh, so there's pillpack.com where you can go and you put in your information and they pull up your prescription history in order to allow you to get your prescriptions from them. The problem is they don't do very much in the way of identity verification. Mm. So 
this has been fixed now, mm-hmm. but because uh, this what we're reading here is actually the vulnerability disclosure after it was fixed. Okay. Um, the researcher found that if you went to the website and typed in any person's name, their full name, and had their real birth date, he could see all of their active prescriptions. No. And sometimes their prescription history. So, like a public figure that where that would be public information. For everybody, where you anybody whose birthday you knew, basically. But uh, too bad we didn't know about this until now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> would have been could have had some fun with that. <laughs> I've I haven't had a prescription in a long time. Well, yeah, no, no, yeah, but still, but, uh, yes, this is obviously horrible. And so now, while Pillback has has fixed the vulnerability via their site by making actually manually verifying some other information, it seems that the pharmacy looks up your information using only those two things. Well, it, it seems to me, A, that there could easily be two people with the same name and birth date. Sure. Sure. You know, there are a lot of common first names and last names, and yeah. then a common birth date on top of that is not an impossible thing. Name and birthday is definitely not enough information to uniquely identify someone's prescription. We want to make sure you're not giving them the wrong amount or the wrong medicine or <laughs> yeah. something, right? Yeah. Or, you know thinking they have the wrong, an, an allergy they don't or worse, not knowing that they have an allergy and so on. Uh, so while they've fixed this one site, it seems that the system that pharmacies use is ripe for abuse and is not secure and has yeah. any mean, it, obvious problems. It sounds like if it thinks you're an authorized user, then you just get to pull any information you want. Yes. And so like, apparently if you go start a random website called you know pillpusher.com, you can get access to this thing and just start farming out people's information. Hmm. Anyway, uh, you can read the whole vulnerability thing over on the, the blog there. Interesting find, Alan. Interesting find. Uh, all right, we have an uh, article from HackerTarget.com on quietly mapping the network attack surface. Yes, Ooh. so this is basically all the things you can find out about a company's network without ever actually doing anything that resembles a scan. Like, first, if you just look up their SPF record or sender policy framework, uh, so that's a DNS record that um, gets looked up automatically by mail servers all the time. And basically what it uh, does is a company can publish a list of IP addresses that mail that they send will come from so that if you ever send mail that's from a different IP, it's like, oh, that's probably a spammer pretending to be the real me, right? So Scale Engine has an SPF record, and it's these are the IPs of the Scale Engine mail servers. Mail sent by anyone other than those is probably spam. Well, if you use that, then now you can sometimes see the IP addresses of, of related systems and networks, right? Because, you know, you know the IP address of the mail server for, you know, example.com. Mm-hmm. But their SPF record might give you hints of, here's some other networks that are part of our company that are maybe trusted by our internal systems, right? So, you know, if their web page is really hardened down because they're preparing, you know, expecting to get attacked, but, you know, they have some system over here that's trusted, and if you break into it, then you could just walk in through the firewall to (laughs) the the hardened system because you're coming from a trusted network. Mm. And they also mentioned, you know, if you connect to the mail server and you get the banner message that comes up, you could usually figure out what OS and mail server they're using, and maybe that gives you information about what their servers look like or, you know, a list of what vulnerabilities they might be exposed to and so on. Hmm. Or hmm. Looking, uh, <clears throat> looking up their name servers and where those are hosted and mm-hmm. um, even attempting to do a, a, a zone transfer which actually could let you download their entire DNS zone file if they haven't locked it down properly. And then you would find the IP address and host name of every machine in their network, possibly. 
and you know, just looking at the forward and reverse DNS for all their ranges of IPs, you might figure out stuff because you know, oftentimes people will name their server something that tells you what it does. Yeah, sure. And all of a sudden, oh, so there's the IP address for their server that does this. Yeah, yeah. Seattle uh, Mail Server, Seattle Web Server, Seattle Database yeah. Server, things like that. Yeah. Uh, and then they also say, uh, if you know IP addresses and stuff, you can go over to scans.io and and search for host names that are related and stuff, or you know, like we mentioned, the zone transfer and stuff. Or you can go over to Shodan and do identity, uh, so you can search based on the IP addresses and see what services are running, right? Because Shodan basically uh, indexes all those banner messages from all the services. So if you know a NetBlock belongs to the company you're targeting, you can find out all the services that are running on all their different machines yeah, and yeah. what versions they're using oh, and all yeah. that stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, you can also obviously scan their IPs, but that's active and might yeah. get detected. Yeah. But you can also use scans.io to search scans that have been done by other people mm. and are indexed so that you don't have to do your own new scan, Ooh. which is also faster and doesn't, you know, set off any alerting system yes, or whatever. Exactly. Uh, hmm. And then, you know, if you know where their website's hosted, you can search their website for related domains and other things that link to their website. If a site links to their website, maybe it's related. You can find stuff out. Uh, you can figure out what CMS they're using, right? By active fingerprints in the HTML. You know, oftentimes WordPress, there will be certain words, or you say, you know, powered by WordPress at the bottom of the page or something. That means that it's WordPress. Or, you know, often yeah, WordPress themes, if you use a free WordPress theme, often it puts a little tagline, even if it's just a comment in the HTML, Ooh, not themes. visible. That tells you, hey, it's, hey, this is WordPress theme X. Yeah. Well, yeah. probably means they're running WordPress. Um, there's also uh, what web, which can help you figure out what something is running. There's uh, there's uh, I I uh, I got an email from uh, 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 a listener who's got a uh, company that does like an online password database that uh, it's sort of along these same lines. It's uh, it's sort of like they've built it so you don't have to. I think we might be talking about it more in the future, and it's it fits in line with these kinds of tools, and people are building more and more all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'll, uh, for some reason, apparently there's a Bing IP address search. Oh, really? I don't know what that does. But you can, uh, you know, figure out where it's hosted, related stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do brute force against common domains, you know, figure out, oh, well, if they have www.example.com, there's probably a mail.example.com. There might be an ftp.example.com, you know, lots of things like that. Also, things like Netcraft might have a history of what web servers they've been using in the past and so on. And, you know, banner grabs on the web server and lots of different things you can use to figure out what's happening there. Mr. Jude. Let's shift gears. Uh, we got a huge roundup today. Uh, this seems like the, today TechSnap has had like um, really bad news for the medical industry and not like the bogus like cyber threat stuff, but like records and hard to track breaches. And, and now we have a national cyber awareness bulletin about these infusion pumps uh, that could have software vulnerabilities uh, like 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 the, like pumps that are inf- like putting stuff into people's bodies. This is horrible. Yeah. Uh, it allows re- remote attackers to gain root privileges via port 23. Yeah, you guessed it. Telnet. Uh, software version 412 does not require authentication for Telnet sessions for the Hospera Lifecare so, yeah. infusion So pumps. I don't know if it's over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or something and what the range is or anything like that. But you basically can just Telnet into this thing and log in root password blank and you're in. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Hey, uh, okay, next one. The Boeing 787, 787 Dreamliner, which is a, a local, a, a, a big local story here in Washington, contains mm-hmm. a potentially catastrophic software bug. 
Um, yeah, so there's a control software that controls the generators that are part of the engines. I think each engine has two generators, mm-hmm. uh, and these uh, so that if one dies, everything's okay. And each one of those has a control unit. Uh, or maybe there's one generator per engine, and there's two control units. Anyway, um, apparently if the generator control unit is left running for 248 days of uptime, it will then crash. Yeah, the generator and shuts so down. Both of them will crash at the same time, and the generator will shut down, and all the power in the plane will go out, and yep. the plane will fall out of the sky. Yeah, and it seems to be a software bug. Yeah, uh, most likely it's uh, uh, integer overflow. Yeah. Basically, if you have a 32-bit signed <laughs> integer, it will, uh, and if you go up by centiseconds or hundredths of a second, uh, 248.55 days is where that would overflow. And yeah, so it basically keeps going up, and then... Uh, because uh, signed numbers are stored in a computer in binary, right? And so they use the very most important digit, the uh, the furthest one over, to be the plus minus sign, right? Uh, so if it's zero, it's positive, and if it's one, that means it's negative. And so when you're <coughs> counting up, you you know you have, it, it works like an odometer in a car, right? Mm-hmm. Except for it only has one or zero. So you have zero is when you start, and then one, and then when you shake it over, it becomes one zero. And then one one, and then one zero zero, and it keeps ticking up. Well, eventually, when you get to the biggest possible number you can express in thirty one bits, when you add one to it, you actually end up with uh, flipping the the bit for the positive negative, and then you start going up, or the other way around. Uh, so basically, after you go one over the maximum number, you get the largest possible negative number. That's and, a, <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know what Boeing's uh, – so Boeing is obviously working on a software fix. I mean, remember the Streamliners had battery issues. This is a brand new yeah. plane. Uh, and, and right no, now no, – No 747 has ever been left running for 248 days. <clears throat> well, this only uh, – Boeing found it themselves in their test lab where they left the generator control computer running for that long and figured out what the problem was. And, and to prevent it from happening, Boeing just recommends in the meantime, just turn the plane off and back on again. Uh, yeah. So basically, uh, the FAA has put out a directive requiring all airlines to reboot their <laughs> Boeing 787s at least once every so many months. Turn it off and on uh, again. So that they won't uh, get to this magic marker. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I don't really have a lot to say about this next story, but Microsoft uh, is getting big into cybersecurity, and it's rolled out some advanced threat analysis tools. Uh, it's a, like, Ours, Technica, calls it our raft of security and data protection software at the Ignite conference, which is going on right now. Uh, they have a couple of different tools they're putting out there, so you guys can go check it out. Microsoft's getting big, and it's like, like I said, I don't have a lot to add here other than Microsoft's planning to make some big moves across like whole network orchestration, so you find a, vulner- you find a threat, and then you reconfig the network from servers to switches and routers and firewalls all on one go. It's kind of a cool system. But... I'll leave that to the exercise of the reader. Hey, Alan, let's talk about uh, how to make two binaries with the same dang MD5 hash. What? Yeah. Uh, so previously it showed uh, um, this guy had wrote a blog post about doing it with how to make two PHP scripts the same thing, mm. but that wasn't really impressing many people. <laughs> uh, so this one basically shows how to make two different C binaries uh, that have exactly the same MD5 hash. Uh, the general idea is, you know, when you're downloading important software, you're supposed to do the MD5 hash, make sure it didn't get corrupted or modified uh, in transit. And basically, what he does is, is spe- this is especially important for open source with mirrors, right? Mm. So if you're downloading a mirror, uh, if you're downloading GPG from a mirror, uh, you want to make sure that the copy on that mirror is the same as the one on the official website or whatever, right? Uh, 
Uh, and so, but uh, MD5 is vulnerable to what's known as the birthday attack, where when you know the two starting points, you can just do some math and find the point at which these two will intersect and cause a collision. Mm. So he has uh, some C code here that basically defines a, a, a constant called dummy. That's just the letter A repeated a whole bunch of times. And then it does a comparison of that whole string ending with an A uh, or that whole string ending with a B. And if those two strings are uh, come out to be equal, then uh, if they come out not to be equal, then draw an angel on the screen. And if they are equal, draw a devil on the screen. So when you run it, it will always draw an angel because A is not equal to B. Uh, but then he runs it through this little script here that finds an MD5 collision, mm. uh, and it basically replaces that long string of A's at the top of the application with two different random strings such that the MD5 hash of the compiled program will come out to be the same. And now, when you run it, it, become, it, it prints out a devil instead of an angel. <laughs> or, or, sorry, you yeah. get two, uh, when you're done, you get two applications, one called angel, one called devil. Yeah. Uh, both of which have the same MD5 hash, but the code inside has been modified so that one of them uh, works and one of them doesn't. Hmm. And so now you have two binaries that, uh, if you're using an MD5 to verify, would both say exactly the same, but when you run them, they do different things. Yeah. That guy looks... You take off the horns, I'd almost think he's Mr. Spock, not the devil, <laughs> if you had took off the horns. That's interesting, Alan. Good find. Nice follow-up, too. Uh, all right, so this is uh, one for you Docker fans out there. Docker, uh, two days ago, made a blog post saying, understanding Docker security and best practices. And essentially what it comes down to is there's going to be uh, a couple of bits of information coming out. And one of them is a book. Two books, I think, actually. And the one you're going to want to look for is Introduction to Container Security. Uh, this is It's a paper, though, not a book. And it explains how the first one's a book. This one's a paper. It explains how containers work and what it means for application isolation and operational security. It's the foundation for understanding how the engine works under the hood. And uh, then they have learned more about Docker. They have some uh, an online tutorial in about 10 minutes. And they also recommend people check out the security page. I, this is interesting. I think Docker is feeling a little bit of the heat. Uh, so they've been, uh, they've been sort of trying to address some of this. And then we have... Uh, so we have a book coming soon on it, or, and, and also the white paper. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And the security section on their wiki yep. has been updated. <clears throat> I know. They hear it. They hear it um, and we have a little more container stuff coming up. But first, let's talk about Netflix. What's this Netflix uh, GitHub repo about here, Alan? What do we got here? Yeah. Uh, so uh, if you remember when we were talking uh, earlier in the story about cybersecurity and that silly article about the um, – Pros, the tools the pros use or whatever. Uh, we kind of talked about how what you really need is the equivalent of a cybersecurity fire alarm, an alarm that only goes off when there's actually a fire, hmm. that kind of filters out all these notifications and stuff and only uh, gets the attention of a human when the attention of a human is actually required. Right? Software cannot ever protect your network from everything. But what you really want is software that gets you involved only when you need to be so that you don't get alert fatigue, right? Uh, so uh, Netflix has released their thing called FIDO, the Fully Integrated Defense Operation. <laughs> uh, and basically what it does is it integrates and automates the manual human process of codifying the logic and process used by threat uh, analysts to provide consistent and reliable results. 
basically taking in the information from all your monitoring alerting systems and and from you know those incoming attacks and all those different things and putting it together into one system and only calling your attention to it when it's required. So it uses uh, a bunch of different detectors, uh, including uh, Carbon Black, uh, Cyfort, ProtectWise, Sentinel-1, Bit-9, Palo Alto, uh, FireEyes, MPS, and MAS, SourceFire, Sophos, uh, Bro, and Snort. So it takes information from all those different uh, detectors and then puts it together, makes a database, and then only sends alerts out to you when it's actually a high enough chance of a problem uh, that you want to get a human involved, right? So it's like, oh, Bit9 detected this banned file, and oh, it it came in way it shouldn't, where that file shouldn't be, and and you know, so you don't get uh, an alarm going off every time somebody has a file they're not supposed to have, but when a file shows up where it shouldn't be, in a bunch of other things. Uh, you know, it's basically turn down the amount of information you're mm. you're sending to the humans so that only the useful ones get through. Mm-hmm. Is that, do you think such a thing is possible? Um, it seems like they've got the right approach here. Okay, all right. I would love to see it, Alan. All right. <clears throat> so we said they more have some screenshots. If you look at the example alert, uh, oh, they if do you go into their wiki. Oh, 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 I was I was tooling around on the GitHub page. I, oh, yeah, yes, they on do. The, yeah, on the GitHub page at the bottom, there's a link to a wiki, and then if you on along the sidebar, uh, if you go to example mm-hmm. alerts, fourth from the bottom on the sidebar. Example alert. Hmm. And then there's a graphic. That's not bad. Yeah, it's not overly snazzy, but it is. I kind of like it. Exactly though. what you want. <clears throat> it's like a heat level, like a temperature of uh, of. Almost, or like a like a levels, or I like that. That's oh, cool. Netflix, boy, wouldn't this be neat? And you know, if anybody's going to have this figured out at scale, well, a company like Netflix is going to be it. So, exactly. and you can see they're using a lot of other detectors, right? Yeah, Bit Nine, Sentinel One, Protect okay. Lights, Fire. All right, all right. You know what? I don't know. When I see it, and it's it doesn't like because it seems like this big imaginary concept, but then when you see it, it's actually kind of it, I, the clunkiness almost almost makes me feel like it is more of a real thing. Yeah, well, basically, it's just aggregating information from a bunch of sensors mm-hmm. and only bothering to bother you when a bunch of them agree that there's a problem. Yeah. Uh, let's talk more about containers. Uh, so CoreOS Fest was just going on, and it seems like Docker was the awkward elephant in the room at the Fest. Uh, that's according right, to... I, in, in previous times, Docker would have been the center of yeah. CoreOS Fest, yeah. and this time they were uh, conspicuously not there. And uh, Right, because... Docker not only announced Rocket, or I'm sorry, CoreOS not only announced Rocket, but they've also just recently announced their own app container spec, app, a- a- APPC, which competes directly with Docker's. And they're, and the guy behind CoreOS, who I've talked to, I've interviewed before, has been, even though he's on the board of Docker, is critical of Docker's security. Uh, so CoreOS Fest uh, had prominent companies there, uh, Google, Intel, Red Hat, Twitter, VMware, uh, lots of others, lots of uh, speakers, most reluctant to trash Docker. Uh, uh, Google seemed to actually have some praise for Go- uh, Docker, but otherwise, he was Docker was kind of the awkward guy there. And it's interesting to see CoreOS coming out with their own universal spec and uh, all that stuff. The, the uh, container wars remain interesting. Okay, Alan, are you ready for our next roundup story? This one is yes. from the lab of a penetration tester. Hey, look at this. Windows passwords. Yay, dumping user passwords and plain text on Windows 8.1 and server 2012. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, so apparently if you just add one specific um, 
registry entry on Windows 8.1, it will store passwords in plain text. Brilliant. Uh, so he's got a little bit of PowerScript, a PowerShell script here. You run it, and then uh, <laughs> it sets itself up. So you run it and then lock the machine. And when the person walks over to the machine and unlocks it with their password, it will automatically fire off uh, the second half of your PowerShell script, <laughs> capture their password, and send it to you. Jeez. Or save it for you. Of course, it's just one flag in the registry. What else would you want? Silly. Yeah. Set that with a PowerShell so script. You set this up on somebody's computer, and you can basically... I bet... If they ever leave their computer unlocked long enough for you to go in there, run the PowerShell command, then uh, when they next time they unlock it, then you'll get their password. I bet they have text. to be local admin on the Windows rig for the script to be able to change the registry. But um, a lot of people run as local admin. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is, this well, is for Windows 8.1, that's usually yeah. the one user machine, right? This is just, uh, I, you know, this happens, but I don't know. It's, it's text now. We got, it's, did you hear about the system crash at Starbucks? No. Uh, yeah, the in-store payment system at Starbucks went down last Friday. Um, 8,000 company-operated stores in the United States and Canada were offline. And I actually, had they, Starbucks, though, kind of good guy Starbucks, ended up just giving away some of the coffee at some of the stores. The company said the failure was caused not by hackers, but by a problem. During a daily computer system update. A daily computer system update. Isn't that interesting? The chain said late Friday that it was still working to resolve the problem, which affected the chain's fresh and Geneva stores. Uh, the funny, because people on Twitter started calling it hashtag the frappening. <laughs> yeah. He said, I went to, one guy said, I went to my local Starbucks. Their registers are offline. So, free drinks until they fix the problem. Hashtag customer service. Hashtag win. There you go. I guess you can turn a computer outage into a marketing opportunity. Hey, Alan, uh, I'm not done with CPU talking. Give me a little L3 cache mapping on Sandy Bridge CPU goodness, please. Uh, Yeah, so uh, a little research paper here uh, to figure out. um, So basically on the older Ivory Bridge uh, processors, they would figured out how to do a practical timing side channel attack against kernel space ASLR. Uh, but with Sandy Bridge and newer processors, the cache mapping is slightly different. And so this guy did some work to try to figure out how it works. And uh, basically found that by kind of brute forcing, picking through different uh, physical address memory sizes and so on, you can, from these graphs, see what the difference is and see if he's hitting the alignment or not. Hmm. So address space layout randomization is what we're talking about here. Well, it's uh, being able to get around it or do a side channel right. against it. Yeah. And so they changed uh, – so it it's sort of changed now with Sandy Bridge. So is it's not happening yeah, so at Sandy the Bridge, OS the level processor anymore? is uh, – well, no, sorry. Uh, so ASLR is in the operating system. Yeah. But because of the way the cache works in the <clears> physical <throat> processor, there is a way to get around ASLR. Oh, gotcha. Okay, I'm tracking. And then the newer processor, because they changed the way the cache worked, the workaround for ASLR didn't work. And mm-hmm. so they're trying to figure out gotcha. how the layout is okay. on the newer processor so they can, again, have an exploit against ASLR. Got to get that exploit. All right. Uh, Google can't ignore the Android update problem any longer. This is an op-ed over at Tom's Hardware, kind of echoing mm-hmm. a sentiment that we've been saying for a while. And, boy, exactly. with Google I.O. just a couple of weeks away, wouldn't it be amazing to hear how they're going to solve this problem? That would really be a game changer. The biggest thing is, I think, even if they come up with a solution, it's mostly going to have to be from now on. And, and yeah. not easily going to be able to... Well, and to, here's the problem. I suppose they could, but... Here's the problem. And, and how, do you, how do you not consider this to be a huge failure? Lollipop is. is almost a year old, and it's on 10% is of it? devices. How is that, that? That's pathetic. Well, I imagine part of it is because the hardware requirement for it means that it only runs on devices that are that new. And people don't replace their phone as often as they used to. 
right? If you're comparing the adoption of this against like the adoption of Android 2.x, then yeah, it's going to look bad. But it's because the people on Android 4.x, their phone isn't too old yet, and it still works. If it wasn't for the security problems, then you know everybody'd be actually quite happy about the fact that you know people aren't cycling their phones as quickly as they used to. Hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, so. Right now, it looks I'm looking uh, iOS 8 adoption right now is uh, iOS 8 is at 84.33 percent. But the difference is because you if you had an older iPhone, it got upgraded as well. Yeah. Whereas if you have an older Android phone, it didn't get the update. Yeah, so, and I, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but obviously that has major security ramifications. You can't fix it all through the Play API. But the secondary thing it does is uh, the, 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 the reason why that also sucks is developers can't target the features in Lollipop because they can't depend on the user base having them. So they can't yep. move it forward as fast as they can on iOS. Well, and it's one I- of the reasons why iOS gets applications first because mm-hmm. the newer API set is available to a larger percentage of the user well, base. And like the... I don't know. The newer Android stuff looks so much nicer yes, than the older stuff. It's a much better system. So it's very uh, it's it's so from there's a lot of reasons why it just irks me and I'd love to see yeah. them do something about this. Uh yeah. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Uh next story in the roundup researcher finds a method to bypass Google password alerts. Dun 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 from Dennis Fisher over on ThreatPost. Yeah, so this is a, a plugin for Google's Chrome that's supposed to tell you when your password is being misused or whatever. Yeah, I heard about uh, this. And the researcher found a, a, a way to get around it uh, using a race condition or something, and uh, Google quickly fixed that. But now we found a new one, and doesn't think Google's going to be able to fix that very quickly. <laughs> I just heard about that extension just like yesterday, I think. Yeah. Uh, here's a bombshell. I don't know if I even believe it. It's such a bombshell. Windows 10 to kill off Patch Tuesdays. Yeah, so... Uh, Desktop users? Hold on, Alan, hold on, the- hold on. Hold on. Sorry to interrupt you, but this is really good. The register.co.uk, their sub headline for this article. Did you read this? No. New policy on app git update and app git dist upgrade for Microsoft. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten the joke, so. Okay. Yeah, come on. It's a good last uh, joke. I, I just don't get it. Okay. All. <laughs> all right. Um, so. Um, the basic idea is that instead of waiting until the next Patch Tuesday, updates will go up more quickly, which is good. Yeah. Um, and corporations will get more choice over how to deploy it. So if you're using like the Windows Update Service thingy for Windows Server uh, for Windows Domain deployments, uh, you basically basically be able to have your own policy where you can be like, well, we're going to test it in lab, and once we're sure, we can roll it out. And the general idea from Microsoft seems to be, let us test it on the home users for a while first, and then once we're sure it's not breaking everything, then you can deploy it to all the corporate networks. Yeah, in a way, though, as a business, I kind of like that. Yeah. So. As, as the end user getting the update, thanks for that. It's interesting, though, to see them walk this back, right? Because Patch Tuesday became a thing because too frequent of updates was hard for the enterprises to manage. Now we're going to see is it hard for users to manage. And will they do... Will it really be all updates, or will they reserve some things at scheduled releases? I imagine uh, oftentimes it'll be something like a Patch Tuesday, but yeah. for critical stuff, it'll it will be less of an exception to just get that out to people quicker. Yeah, and I think in the end, that's actually a good thing. Getting yeah. the patches out to people quicker is good, as long as they don't break stuff routinely. Now, you had one thing you added to the end of the roundup. Yes, there, right? this is just a note I saw in a secret place. Okay. Uh, but an unnamed previous developer mentioned that he found a place uh, 
he doesn't work there, but he is aware of a place now where an ex-employee had went into their source code repository, checked out the distribution tarball of free IPMI, which is a software set you use to control servers. Right. Unpacked it, edited some make files and stuff, retarded it up, and checked it back into the repo with the same name. Mm. So basically, they had a repo where they keep cache of the software they use for everything, for their deployment scripts and so on. And when he didn't work there anymore, they didn't withdraw his credentials mm-hmm. or revoke his credentials. Not too surprising. So he was able to go in there and basically plant a back door in their management software and then check it back in. And who knows how long it's been yeah. with no noticing until That's a now. nice spooky reminder to close those things off when you leave, when people leave or yeah. you, you make them leave. And it's good if you have a way to manage and track it, like a checklist or something, because yep. I, I bet you, I guarantee you, you know, in my the, last The pass, repo where you keep the, uh, the tools for your DevOps or whatever is probably not on most of those checklists from HR or even <laughs> mm-hmm. the regular IT department. Right. I guarantee you. I guarantee my LastPass database has probably client passwords and logins that would probably still work. I've never even tried them. I've been mm-hmm. deleting a lot of that stuff over time, too, as I come across it now, because I just think some of it it's might like, still... This is just in my way or whatever. Yeah, it might still work, and I just don't want it either. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, so uh, that roundup was massive, and uh, you can you can make a story show up on our roundup or even maybe in the higher uh, news section of the show by going over to techsnap.reddit.com and submitting something to our subreddit there, feedback, stories... Actually, just voting and commenting also helps quite a bit. Now, don't forget the TechSnap shows live on Thursdays. We do this at 1 p.m. Pacific on Thursdays, which is? Yes. Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. Boom. Uh, also, jblive.info is available for the audio-only streams of this show. We have RSS feeds you can subscribe to to get the download version uh, Im- immediately available, depending on your podcast catcher. And mm-hmm. uh, I would I would actually really invite you to join us live, though. I think that's a great experience because we interact with the chat room during the segment breaks. We're taking yep. questions. Uh, like Heller64 was in there uh, giving us additional information about his feedback question. So it's kind of a cool thing if you send an email into the show and you show up live, too. Sometimes you can give us a little bit more info if we're searching around for stuff. So it's a great experience. But, of course, it is always available on demand. And in all kinds of formats from all different kinds of places. You guys know all about that. Something I don't say too often is uh, if you really love the TechSnap show, I would invite all of you to uh, go find the MP3 feed in iTunes and leave a comment and a rating. If we all concentrate on one feed, that maybe will help the, the algorithms a little bit find that. And that that moves us up in the uh, search ranking so then other people can find the TechSnap program. I know you're probably not a big iTunes user. A lot of you aren't. But those of you that have it installed or have a device that has access to it, like an iOS device, uh, you could help the show be discovered by new listeners by going into iTunes. And let's all let's all just pick on the MP3 feed because then it concentrates instead of spreading it out. And uh, you might be able to move the dial for the TechSnap program and have some people new find new people find us. It'd be really cool, and we really really do appreciate it because it only takes. Well, it takes about 25, 30 of you, which is more than you'd think they'd actually ever do it. So I do appreciate it when you get a chance. Just search for TechSnap on iTunes and put a review and a comment. I don't ask too often. It helps a lot, but I know it's kind of tedious. So I do appreciate it if you can. All right. Well, enough asking. We'll just leave it right there. You send us your feedback and uh, then join us live next week and we'll wrap it up. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. See you next week. 